Hey, it's great to be here to uh, fill in for our pastor, Pastor Dan, and as he and his wife are on vacation. And uh, we're going to be in uh, uh, the 85th Psalm today. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to the Psalm 85, or if you don't, I believe they have it on the screen behind me. So uh, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 85 today, the whole Psalm, 13 verses, and I'm going to read through it. I'd appreciate it if you'd follow along, and then uh, we'll pray and get started. Psalm 85. You showed favor to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger throughout, through all generations? Will you not revive us again so that, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near, those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be here this morning. Thank you for your, your, uh, your blessing of giving us uh, this wonderful nation to live in, to be a part of. Thank you for what we celebrate tomorrow, our independence. Thank you for the, the deliverance that you've given us through that and throughout the many years that we've, we live in this country, all the privileges that we have. Lord, we just uh, ask your blessing on our pastor as he's out vacationing. He needs this. He needs to, uh, to relax and bless the time with he and, his, and, and Cindy and the kids and their relatives and wherever else they go. Just help them to um, re-energize and, and renew and refresh and come back later uh, uh, this summer with, with just a, a zeal and an excitement and, uh, and uh, just, again, renewed energy. And Lord, we just pray for the word now as we're in it today, as we talk about a very important subject that's very, very important uh, as we celebrate our 4th of July tomorrow. Um, just, uh, just speak to us through your word and bless us as a group. Bless our, our uh, children's uh, leaders and, and the nursery leaders and workers and all the helpers. Just bless them as they do their ministry and just touch the, our, young, our youngsters and, uh, and those that are traveling, part of our church that are not here, traveling and doing other things uh, out, out of town or wherever they are, I just give them a safe journey and bring, us, bring them back to us again later this, this month. And we pray these things in the, in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. We'll see if you agree with me. Um, if you think the following description is accurate, just... just Hear me out and see if you think this is an accurate description. America is in a, a severe moral and spiritual slump. Substance abuse is epidemic, and thousands are buried each year because of it. Social graces are disappearing, and profanity has increased among the general population. The social conscience has become seared and continually promotes immoral sexual behavior. 
Theft and violent crime are a daily occurrence and increasing, so much so that certain segments of the population are afraid to go out alone at night or at night for fear of assault or worse. We are seriously, as a nation, we are seriously divided on important political, social, and economic issues and how to deal with them. The value of human life is at an all-time low. Financially, the divide between the haves and the have-nots is increasing all the time. Yet at the same time, materialism saturates our culture. Under unemployment or underemployment is a constant reality. National disruption and fear is creeping in at a rapid rate. The church at large has backslidden to the point that it no longer has the influence on society that it once had, with many denominations losing more members each year than gaining members each year. Many denominations no longer believe in the inspiration of the Bible or of the need to fulfill the Great Commission, but simply having church be a place of religious morality, social action, or human potential only. Many of the nation's liberal arts colleges have become largely anti-Christian bastions of thought, um, mocking Christians and Christianity in all kinds of ways, making it more difficult than ever for Christians to meet on campus and demanding or forcing the resignation of the administrators if challenged for their behavior. If you were to say that's an apt description of America as we know it today, would you agree with me? I think you might also be interested to know that what I've stated just now is a uh, description made by Christian historians of early American history of the conditions in this country between the years of 1776 and 1781. It's a time period that we tend to idealize, don't we? 1776, we declared our independence, and it dropped off the table real quickly. It really did. And we've had dark times, dark moral and spiritual times like that uh, since then, many times. This isn't the only dark time morally and spiritually in this country. There have been many, you know, if we had time, through the 1800s and the 1900s, and again, even today in, in, in our years that we're, we're living now. And yet again and again and again, God mercifully and miraculously touched our nation and brought it back from the brink of disaster and judgment with revivals and renewals and, and miraculous deliverances. And, and it took this nation and brought it back to its, its foundational principles. Same is true of the nation of Israel than it is for America in a lot of ways. They had backslidden away from God morally and spiritually many times. And God had mercy on Israel. He revived them. He restored them. He brought them back into his favor and protection and withdrew his judgment. Which begs the question that we're going to get into today is, is it too late? for our country, the country that we live in and love. Is it too late? Have we gone past the point of no return? Um, are we um, going to be or are we in judgment for the final time as this country? Or can our downward spiral end morally and spiritually? And can God or will God revive us as a nation and protect us from ultimate judgment? And the answer is yes. That's the answer as we're in this 4th of July weekend. We can be restored as a nation, one way or another, whether it's in, in, in the immediate days that follow in, in, on our calendar 
chronologically or with his return and setting his kingdom on, in heaven and on earth up in our world. But it can be brought back and revived and renewed in a m miraculous way. Now, we as Christians have a job to do to, uh, to a, a part in that happening. And that's where we get into Psalm 85. Okay, and so we're going to look at our job as Christians to do what the nation of Israel did as instructed here in Psalm 85, and because we can be part of our nation changing again to where it's under the approval and the blessing of God. So the title of the message today, as we put, go into the 4th of July, is Can Our Nation Change? Can Our Nation Change? And as we get into the psalm, we're going to look at some essential steps that you and I need to take Okay, we're not going to point a bony finger out or wag our finger or complain about our society and our culture and our politicians. What can we do as the church of Jesus to uh, do our part to see our nation change and get back under God's good grace and his favor and his protection and his blessing? Okay, five of these essential steps we need to take for our nation to change. First of all, we need to remember our original foundations our original foundations. If you look at verses 1 through 3 here back again in Psalm 85, they say, it says, You showed favor to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Now, if you notice in verse 1 that word favored, that means acceptable or having a healthy relationship with God. He was at the center of Israel, and the whole world knew it. And when they went into the promised land, into the land of Canaan, to take over what God had promised them, the nations knew they were under the favor of God. You know, same was true of the United States of America. I mean, we've never been perfect. We've always had sins and warts and faults and failures and weaknesses, and we're not going to deny that, okay? That's, I think, a little bit weird, but... But we were favored and blessed by God and under the mantle of his protection. The God of the Bible and his son Jesus Christ were at the center of our nation by and large. Pastor Robert Jeffress puts it this way. Let's look and see what the record of history says. The politically incorrect truth today is the vast majority of the men that founded our nation were evangelical Christians. Uh, 52 of the 55 signers of the Constitution, the framers of the Constitution, were evangelical believers. That was, they were hardly neutral towards Christianity. I thought this was an interesting point that he brought up. Every state had their own articles of qualification for what it would take to hold office in that state and what it would take to qualify to go to the Constitutional Convention. Now listen to this. Article 22 of the Constitution of Delaware said, quote, Every person who, sh sh who shall be chosen a member of either house or appointed to any office or place of trust shall make and subscribe to the following declaration. I do profess faith in God the Father and Jesus Christ, his holy Son, and in the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forever, and I do acknowledge that the Holy Scriptures to the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. Can you imagine that today? And that was, there were many many uh, state constitutions that were like that. It wasn't just particular to Delaware. 
Okay? We're told over and over and over again today that our country's founders were secularists, deists, sprinkled with a few Christians here or there, who came to this nation seeking, above all things, to build an unscalable wall between the government and Christianity. And most importantly, they wanted to compartmentalize Christianity to the church and to the home. They wanted Christianity to have no influence in public policy. That version of history is complete fiction. And don't forget it. Listen to an entry by the, in the diary of our first president, George Washington. This is George Washington's diary. Quote, Let my heart, gracious God, be so affected with your glory and majesty that I may discharge those weighty duties which thou requirest of me. Again, I have called on thee for pardon and forgiveness of sins, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered on the cross for me. Thou gavest thy son to die for me and has given me assurance of salvation. That's our first president. Talk about original foundations. Patrick Henry, responsible for the Bill of Rights, said, being a Christian is a character which I prize far above all this world has or can boast. This is the uh, person responsible for our Bill of Rights, our Bill of Rights. John Quincy Adams, sixth president of the United States. In the chain of human events, the birthday, the birthday of the nation, that's tomorrow, is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the Savior, the Declaration of Independence laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. And this is the foundations. And I've got, you know, I could quote till the sermon was over and not go any farther. It's just over and over and over again, our foundations were in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and Christianity, evangelical Christianity not some watered-down, lukewarm, limp-wristed, sugar-coated Christianity, Bible-believing, Christ-centered Christianity. Listen to the, i got to say this, because the Supreme Court, i gotta, gotta got to go back to the roots of the Supreme Court. In 1811, the Supreme Court said, whatever strikes at the root of Christianity tends to destroy civil government. I'd like to send that to our Supreme Court. In 1892, the Supreme Court of our land said, Our laws and institutions must necessarily be based on and must include the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It's our Supreme Court. This is the foundations, okay? And we ought not be ashamed of that or embarrassed about it or ignorant of it. And I could go on and on, like I said, can't do it, no time. I did ask Julie to put in the bulletin a couple websites for you that you can look up, and they've got great sermons and great resources if you want to study this further. It's very enjoyable to do that, and it's encouraging, so we'll leave that there. But if we want our nation to change, we've got to remember and stick to and be clear about our foundational principles, okay? Secondly, if we're going to change, we need to be honest about our present condition and not kind of stick our heads in the sand. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 85. I like what the Israelites do here. It, it hurts, but it's unnecessary. Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. 
Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Like Israel, we need to admit to God that we have a desperate need to be restored. You know, if they're asking for restoration, they have realized we're in the doghouse right now. We're not in his favor. And that's important. The word restore here means to turn us back or turn, us, turn back to us. It's an admission. We're off track. We're in trouble. We need help. See, Israel had been a great nation at one time, but it had fallen out of favor with God. You know the drill. They wandered from God. They became independently minded. They began to take on the characteristics of their culture, rebellious, corrupt, selfish, materialistic, greedy, self-interest was all that mattered to them. Okay? All that, you, you know that. Secularized to a certain point. And they admit it. Finally, they admit it. Okay? And uh, we need to admit it. We need to admit what's going on. Dr. James Merritt, I don't know if you've ever seen him on TV, but he has no problem admitting anything. No problem being honest. I love his preaching. And he said this about America. And I don't think he's saying it to poke a stick in our eye as much as to be honest about where we're at. He said, America is a sick nation. We lead the industrialized world in murder, rape, and violent crime. We've become a nation where the criminal is deified and the victim is vilified, and where evil is called good and good is called evil. We've become a nation where the life of the snail darter has become more valuable than the baby in the womb. We have said loudly and clearly by the people we have placed in the highest offices of our nation, our character doesn't matter, why should yours? We're a nation that's marked by moral regression, sexual revolution, and spiritual rebellion. I predict before America is conquered from without, she's going to corrode from within. America will not die by homicide, she's going to die by suicide. We will not ultimately be destroyed by what someone else will do to us, but what, by what we do to ourselves. America's biggest problem is not inflation, interest rates, budget deficits, or even crime. Her biggest problem is sin. America's greatest enemy is not Iraq, Iran, North Korea, Russia, or China. America's greatest enemy is herself. America's, America's biggest threat is not nuclear proliferation, terrorism, communism, humanism. America's biggest threat is God. America's only hope is not in better government, new political leadership, balanced budgets, nuclear missiles, or dollar bills. America's only hope is revival. Wish you wouldn't beat around the bush, don't you? Charles Stanley says, in the last three decades, the moral declension of America has continued at a supersonic rate. Although we continue to be a world leader in certain fields, we have drifted far from our original roots. We are the greatest debtor nation on earth and the most violent. We suffer the plague of horrible diseases, the burden of intolerable debt, and the increasing anguish of disobedience to the eternal truths of God. Now that's not to say that America isn't still great. In so many ways, it is. It's natural beauty, it's economic and vocational opportunities, 
its natural resources, the freedoms that we have, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. It is a great nation. It's still the greatest nation on earth. But it's becoming secularized more and more at such a rapid rate. And we have to admit it and be real about it and not hide our heads in the sand. You know, there are thousands of churches and millions of Christians in America, and yet we're still regressing at a rapid rate. Some years ago, uh, General Omar Bradley, you might associate him with a military era gone by, but he was a Christian and had some great things to say. And I think one of the things he said is really germane to what's going on in our nation today. Let me read a quote by him. He said, and this is some years ago, he said, America today is running on the momentum of a godly ancestry, and when that momentum runs down, God help us. And that was some years ago. Someone said, and I, I just heard this and it just it grabbed me. They said, we're like beautiful flowers, beautifully f- cut flowers in a vase, but without water, fading fast. There's a beauty there, but it's cut, and there's no nourishment going to it, and it's going to fade, and it is fading. How'd that happen? How'd that happen? Before we get to our third point, how'd that happen? I can't say this is the answer to that, but I thought it was interesting. One person helped put their finger on this reason, and I don't have a name to put with this quote, but I thought it, was, I thought it really helped put the finger on at least one reason, and I know you're going to agree with me, at least, at least most of you are, I believe. This person said, much of our religious decline can be traced to Supreme Court rulings that interpreted the First Amendment religious clause in the errant light of Thomas Jefferson's famous wall of separation between church and state. Quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Given hallowed legal standing, Jefferson's comment was made in a letter, not in the Constitution, but in a letter to groups of Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, who feared the Congregationalist Church would become the state-sponsored religion. And Jefferson did this, did refer to this wall of separation, but he also added this, quote, it is a one-directional wall, it keeps the government from running the church, but makes sure that Christian principles will always stay in the government, unquote. Interesting how that quote is never used. There is no evidence to support the elimination of religious influence in the public areas. However, as the Supreme Court removed prayer and the Ten Commandments from public schools, it defines secular humanism and atheism as becoming recognizable religions. There were few outcries from the majority of American citizens, Unbelievers favored such rulings, and Christians in general responded apathetically. So like ancient Israel, we've become like the proverbial frog in the kettle, gradually dying one or two degrees at a time. And judgment, facing judgment. Now you've heard people say this, and I don't know if you agree with it. Maybe you said it. I think I probably said it. That, that we're under God's judgment or we're in danger of God's judgment. Do you think that's true? I, you know, I don't expect an, an answer you know, verbally, but are we under God's judgment or are we close to the fullness of God's judgment being poured out on this country? You know, I read a portion of an interview by 
um, Annie Graham Watts. You ever heard of Annie Graham Watts? You ever hear of Billy Graham? Okay, thought so. She's his daughter, and she is a spiritual powerhouse. Uh, she is. She's a lot like her brother Franklin, who I really love. And she was being interviewed about this, and it was such a good statement about judgment in America that I wanted to share it with you, and then we'll move on. She said that the proliferation of air travel and the ease of information dissemination via the Internet has finally enabled the gospel to be spread across the world like never before. On the negative side of things, however, she points to the judgment upon the earth that will accompany Christ's return, a judgment for which she says that the earth as a whole and the United States in particular is certainly sowing the seeds. Now listen to this. This do you want to take home with you today. He removes his hand that's been protecting us and restraining evil. The restrainer, God, and his spirit is being slowly removed. And when he removes it, because we keep telling him to get out, life can't go on as it has. You agree? Okay. She refers to the recent escalation in effort to remove God from our nation's schools, military, and public discourse, as well as the increasingly mainstream vilification of traditional biblical values upon which our nation was founded. Everywhere, she says, they're telling God to get out. They don't want his name in the Pledge of Allegiance. They don't want him in the schools. They don't want him to say the name of his son, Jesus, in public settings. They don't even allow chaplains now in the military to pray in the name of Jesus. And though God's judgment may not come in the form of lightning strikes or a nuclear bomb at first, something equally fearful and entirely of our own making is on its way if we don't change our course. And this is the punch-in-the-gut statement that she made. God is a gentleman. He doesn't go where he's not wanted. He gradually begins to walk away, and that's what he told Israel in Deuteronomy 28. He said, I'm going to bless you if you turn to me, but if you turn against me, I'll just back away. And then he allows us to be subjected to the things he's been protecting us from, and that's what's happening. But God loves us. He still does. I mean, God birthed us. You always love the one you birth, at least most of the time, right, Mom? Dad? Sometimes it's hard to love the ones we birth. But God loves us, and he birthed us, and he wants to restore us and heal our land. In fact, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible on this is when he's talking to Israel in the state of their rebellion in the book of Zechariah. And in verse, chapter 3, verse 9, he says, says the Lord Almighty, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Wow. He's able to do it. The wicked city of Nineveh in the book of Jonah is an example of this too. God's not limited by who gets elected, what political party's in control, who's in office, how morally bad we are. He's able and willing to restore us. But we play an important part of that we do, everyone here in this, in this place, we all, me, you, we play an important part for the spiritual and moral revival in our country and simply pointing fingers and criticizing and complaining about our culture 
or our political system is not what God's calling us to do. And that takes us to the third point here today. And that is if we want to take this third essential step to when it comes to changing our nation, we need to understand the role that our prayers play in revival and renewal of America. All of a sudden it got really quiet in here. But we are responsible to regularly, daily, consistently, persistently, and as a group pray for this nation to be restored into the good favor of God and for him to, to be at the center of our lives once again. And you can check me on it, but I'm pretty confident about it. Almost all, if not all, national and moral revivals throughout history and certainly in the Bible were preceded by the prayer of at least one person and usually a group of people. So many examples of this, we have no time to do that. You can just Google that. Why? Because prayer works. Prayer works. Prayer, listen everybody, prayer supersedes the political process. Amen? Prayer is more powerful than the state of our economy. Prayer is more powerful than where we are mor morally. And God's called us to daily pray. And I question myself as I question you, am I daily, daily praying for renewal and revival in our land? You know, God said that would work. You know, there are thousands of pastors right now all over the, this nation preaching on us on the scripture. I don't, I didn't choose to do that today, but 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's right there. It doesn't say, if my people who are called by my name shall increase their technology or be better organizers or find some new methods. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. I'll heal their land. So what should we pray? Well, I, I think there's a couple things. Okay? We should pray for a conscious awareness of God and conviction for sin to move across our nation. That's what happened in the great revivals. A consciousness of God. You know, the, our world has done everything to purge God out, haven't they? There's nothing in our society that, 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 that tells anybody they're, they're doing anything wrong anymore. And we need the, a consciousness of, of God and the conviction of sin so that people will turn to the Lord, and we need to pray for that. All the great revivals had this. We need to pray for a work of, of Christ in the hearts of people and that he alone, he alone can meet their deepest needs and desires and that they would turn to him as their Lord and Savior. And we should pray for our leaders, our existing leaders, that they would make decisions consistent with God's will and his word. And that God would put in godly leadership in places, who, people who acknowledge Christ as, as Lord. But verses 4 through 7 here give us some specific things to pray with that. Look at here, verse 4 through 7. Restore us again, O God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? 
Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. What do we need to pray for that they prayed for in this psalm? Restoration, restore us again, verse 4. Deliverance, be our Savior, verse 4. Mercy, put away your displeasure toward us. Revival, revive us again, it says in verse 6. Grace, show us your unfailing love. Extend grace to us like the song we're going to sing in a, in a, in a, shortly. God shed his grace on thee that, that people sing this time of year. And then intervention in verse 7. Grant us your salvation. Deliver us. Again, the reason we pray these things is because Prayer is not limited by time, geography, the economy, consensus, Supreme Court decisions, politicians, or political parties. Prayer goes directly to the, the Almighty God who can act whenever, wherever, whoever, however He wants to to affect any change He wants to as quickly as He wants to. And that's why we should pray daily in your community groups, in your Bible studies, in uh, wherever, alone and together. Let's go to the fourth point here. The fourth essential step on our part, if we're going to see our nation change, is remember our foundations. Okay, be, be realistic and honest about where we're at. Pray. Pray. And then fourth, and if, you're, if, you, if you want to tune out, this would be the time to do it. Okay, if you want to think about the fireworks you're going to blow off or what you're going to have on the barbecue tomorrow, I would suggest now is the time to go there here. Now, still look at me like you're listening. <laughs> but if you want to go to the backyard barbecue, go ahead. Because that's that's, this would be the time. Fourthly, to see our nation change as God's people, we must practice real, honest-to-goodness repentance. We can't count on the society around us to repent. They're just living consistently with a dead spiritual nature. Until they come to know Jesus, they're not going to have any desire to walk with God. We as a people must practice real repentance. Look at verse 8. I will listen to what the Lord, to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints. So he's talking to the saints, that's us who know Jesus. But let them not return to folly. That's what the word I have. Does anybody else have a different word? There. Huh? Sinning at works, yeah. Verse 13, righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Now, what's our part as saints? It's to get rid of the junk that clogs the pipes to God pouring himself through our, no, our land. See, God has chosen you and I to be preservatives and consciences and salt and light to a nation that has none. I mean, vote. Go vote. If you want to be conservative, be a conservative. Don't equate that with Christianity. There's a lot of conservatives that aren't Christians, and they don't act like it. But if you want go ahead. More power to you. But God wants the kind of life we live to lovingly and truthfully prick the souls of the people around us. See, we forget the second part of Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who will call by my name shall humble themselves and pray, amen. And what? Turn from their wicked ways. 
what's that? Does that mean I, I wear, you, no, I, I wouldn't wear a skirt, but if you're a woman, you wear a skirt down to your ankles, and you, uh, uh, you button your top button, and you talk in King James language, and that's what it means to be real churchy and stiff. No, repentance is when we as a Christian determine day by day, year by year, with God's help, that we're going to turn from everything that displeases him toward everything that we know pleases him. That's repentance. So whatever it is in my life that displeases God, with his help and his strength, I'm going to turn from that and I'm going to make it my life goal to put Jesus in control and live for him. That's repentance. It's such an old-timey word, but it's such an exciting thing. And it's so effective in bringing revival and renewal to our country because when our country sees a church that, that has really taken their walk with God seriously, they smell the aroma of that and they're more attracted to it, which, which means more people turn to Christ, which means our nation changes from the inside out. Nehemiah knew that. When the, the Israel was in shambles and the wall was broken down, listen to Nehemiah's prayer. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the, hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Nehemiah didn't be pointing fingers, well, that person and, and that person in office and that person... He said, God, there's stuff in my life that I know doesn't please you, and I'm going to turn to you. With your help, purge that out of me. And you know, I don't know if you know, but if you know the book of Nehemiah, miraculous things happen to that culture. Ezekiel, same thing. Therefore, you, the Lord says in Ezekiel 18.30, Therefore, you Israelites, I judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. How do you get out of the downfall? Okay, look at your own ways. Do we have attitudes, actions, words, habits, propensities, idiosyncrasies? things that we know are displeasing to the Lord, thoughts, behaviors that, that aren't consistent with his will for our life, will we turn away from them and ask the Holy Spirit to purge them out of us by his grace and give us the fullness of his spirit? That's how a, a nation is changed, one at a time, by real repentance. And we need to do that. How do you do that? You live a life that's pleasing to God. I live a life that, try to, we try to live a life that's pleasing to God with his help. First Thessalonians 4 breaks it down really good. I'm going to hurry here because time is fleeing. But if you, if you happen to, is First Thessalonians 4 up there? Okay. This is how you live a life pleasing to God. You live a life of repentance. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instruct you how to live in order to please God. How do you do that? In fa as in fact you are living. 
Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Here it is. It is God's will that you are sancti- should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should t- wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to live a, lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life might win the respect of outsiders. So with God's help, how do we live a life that's pleasing to him and repent and, and impact our culture? Strive for purity in all areas, especially the sexual area. Love and serve our fellow Christians in the church. Lead a quiet life. Mind our own business. Be productive and maintain a good witness for Christ. That's how we impact our nation. Repentance among God's people plays a vital part in that. And then finally... A fifth essential step for our nation to change is this. Just trusting that God's going to do something. Trust him. He is, by the way, now or upon his return, which could be soon. Let's hope it is. But trust that he's going to do something, not walk around with a, you know, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I think I'll go eat worms kind of, mentality kind of a prophet of doom no God's going to do something look at uh, verses 9 through 12 as we as we close this out surely his salvation is near to those who fear him I love that word surely by the way Uh, actually (coughs) excuse me (coughs) verse 8 we'll start there I will listen to what God the Lord will say he promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord indeed will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his step. God's going to do it. Let's trust him to do it. He said he's going to do it now, soon, or ultimately when he returns and sets his kingdom up in heaven and on earth. But we've got to trust him that he's going to do it. Again, I love the word surely in verse 9. Surely he's going to do it. He's going to bring peace and wholeness and well-being and his glory and love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace and protection and prosperity. And we need to trust him for that either now, soon in our days, here as a country, or 
ultimately when he returns. And my question is, and I address this to myself, are we ready? Are we ready? Do we remember our foundations? Are we realistic about where we're at? Are we praying seriously daily and in our groups? Are we practicing repentance from whatever displeases God day by day, year by year, living the Christian life with all our heart, enjoying Jesus as our best friend? Are we doing that? Are we claiming his promise for a worldwide revival and renewal that will come sooner or later? That's our part in changing a nation. And if by chance you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to have a personal heart change before you can be part of a nation change. You know, the whole nation, the whole country can change around you, but if your heart hasn't changed, if it hasn't been transformed by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for your sins, what good is revival going to do you? And the way that that happens is you trust him as your personal Lord and Savior. And then, after your personal revival, you can begin to help the entire nation change with all God's saints. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are a good God, and you care about this country. And it's so encouraging to see that you not only are able to work, but you're willing to work. And thank you for showing us our part. Your part is to do the supernatural. Our part is to remember where we came from and, and not forget that. And to realize where we're at now and not ignore that. And to pray and to repent. That's our job, Lord. And to trust that you're going to do something. And so that tomorrow won't be just an empty day of paper plates and barbecued chicken and relay races. It'll be a day that, that we can rejoice in because we know you're going to work. And we pray, Lord God, that you would renew and revive our nation and come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we ask it in your name. Amen. At this time, being the first Sunday of the month, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Or are we going to take an offering first? We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Okay. We'll have our ushers or our servers come forward at this time and uh, prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. Okay, uh, you may be seated. Um, what anniversary is it? How many years has it been since we declared independence? Anybody want to guess? What's, it, what's our anniversary? 240, very good. Okay, tomorrow's our 200th anniversary, 240th anniversary of a very special holiday, 4th of July, Independence Day, a Nash federal holiday. And for those of you that don't know the official line, maybe historically, it's, it commemorates the adoption of the Declaration of Independence on July 4, 1776 by the Continental Congress, declaring that the 13 American colonies regarded themselves as a new nation, the United States of America, no longer a part of the British Empire. And so 4th of July, it's commonly associated with all kinds of activities tomorrow. It's going to be 
85 degrees and sunny. I don't know what it's going to be. I hope it is. But there's going to be fireworks and parades and barbecues and picnics and concerts and baseball games and family reunions and all kinds of speeches that people will make and so on and so forth. It's going to be a good day. Anniversary of our independence and freedom. Each month here at Cedar Home, and sometimes more, we celebrate another anniversary. A great day of independence and freedom. But it didn't happen two, 24, two, 240 years ago. It happened 2,000 years ago. A wonderful anniversary where we were freed from the penalty of our sins, from the power of our sins and from the guilt of our sin before God. It's an anniversary of our freedom from sin. And it happened when God, in the person of Jesus Christ, died on the cross for our sins and gave us eternal life. Colossians chapter 1 Verses 19 through 22 describes this great day of independence for the Christian. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Wow. I mean, if we're going to get excited about tomorrow about a good piece of fried chicken or a steak or being with our family or playing games or being out on the lake or whatever you do, shouldn't we also kind of be excited about the Lord's Supper? Amen? I mean, I'm not saying don't be excited about the fourth, but man, when I think of the amazing accomplishments of Jesus on our behalf, the sacrifice that he made, and the results of that, we ought to just be filled with thankfulness and happiness and meaning and enthusiasm as we, sh as we take the supper that represents the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're going to do that. We're just going to, as we, as we finished up here this morning, we're going to remember the anniversary of our Savior's death that purchased our forgiveness.